TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Donut Economics versus the Gross Domestic Product. Kate Wayworth, England, and Kamana Maikalani Beamer, Hawaii. Just this morning in early February of 2022, a newscaster announced that the U.S. is about to lose its status as a world superpower to China based on the GDP. The gross domestic product is the total market value of the goods and services produced by a country's economy. For the year 2021, the GDP of the U.S. has been growing only by 5.7%, while that of China has grown 8.1%. The more plastic flowers and hamburgers and weapons of war a country is producing, the higher the GDP. No matter how much energy and resources are used and land and water poisoned to make even more stuff, the GDP system counts only cash transactions in the market and recognizes no value other than money. This means there is no value to peace and to the preservation of the environment. Hawaii was taken over in 1898 by American sugar planters and missionaries with the support of the U.S. Marines. For the last 16 years, the Hawaii Book and Music Festival recovers and celebrates the cultures of the islands. They bring together Hawaiian poets, storytellers, and musicians with community thought leaders and experts in Hawaiian sustainability and resilience. In cooperation with the University of Hawaii at Manoa, they're also inviting international speakers. In 2021, it was the climate scientist Michael Mann from Penn State University and the English economist Kate Rayworth. She studied economics at Oxford and, disillusioned by economic so-called science, dedicated her life to changing the way economic success is measured and public policy determined. Kate Raworth puts the needs of people first, be it food, water, housing, health, equity, and a political voice, and wants them met without overshooting the Earth's ecological ceiling. This and more is laid out in her graphic presentation of three concentric circles, which she tongue-in-cheek calls Donut Economics. Kate Rayworth is being introduced by Kamana Maikalani Beamer, full professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa. Okay. No leila, velina mai ki aloha ika aina. Aloha mai kako. Welcome to the Hawaii Book and Music Festival online, and to this conversation produced for the festival by UH Better Tomorrow Speaker Series. Uh, I'm Kamana Maikalani Beamer, Dana None Hall Chair in Hawaiian Studies, Literature and the Environment at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also a co-founder of the Aina Aloha Economic Futures effort. You know, we all understand we're in a time of unprecedented change that collectively we must navigate together. This requires vision, courage, hope, and community. And uh, I'd just like you to please allow me to open with a, with a song and a story. Um, and this was a chant put to music by my grandmother, 
Winona Kapua Ilohia Manono Kalani de Shea Beamer. She was a courageous woman and a truth speaker. And, uh, you know, this song speaks, many of you might have learned it in schools as kids, it speaks of an endemic Hawaiian tree snail, the kahuli. And the kahuli establishes this relationship with a migratory bird, the kolea, the plover. And uh, kolea flies in from Siberia every year. She's actually here now. You can go out, look out on the aina. And this was a time of tremendous change. You know, the forests were being overrun with the introduction of ungulates and cattle were destroying the forests and crushing up the snails. And in this period of rapid decline, because of the experience of colonization, the Kahuli strikes up a relationship with the Kolea to fetch water and it develops reciprocal relationship together. At least that's a story my grandmother would tell. So. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most critical issues of our time. How can we create an economic system that is just to communities and regenerative to our earth and ecosystems? Is it possible to transition from an economy based on extraction and exploitation and endless growth to an economy that better meets a greater variety of needs for all of humanity, not just the 1%, and an economy that won't fundamentally wreck and degrade our planet. Contemporary economic models, what our guest today calls 20th century economics, devised amazing technologies, produce stunning but concentrating wealth, <laughs> and built modern civilization as we know it. But it also benefited from colonialism and slavery. It's implicated in widespread misery, global environmental degradation, and it's pushed our Earth's eco and climate systems to the brink to survive. And certainly to thrive in greater numbers, we need to do better, much better. Among the world's most respected thinkers in making this economic transition is our guest today, Kate Rayworth. She's worked for the United Nations Development Program, Oxfam International. She currently serves on the World Health Organization's Council on the Economics of Health for All. She's a senior associate at Oxford's Environmental Climate Change Institute. She is the founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab, which has already pioneered adaptations of donut economics in a growing number of cities, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Portland, Melbourne, and more. And she's even cited by Pope Francis. She's the author of the best-selling book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And it's a great pleasure and honor to introduce and give a fun aloha to our guest, Kate Rayworth. Aloha, Kate. Aloha, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm sitting in Oxford in the UK on a very dark October night, and it's just beautiful to see that sunrise out of your window and to be here with you. <laughs> uh, mahalo. 
Kate, maybe you can kind of talk us through, you know, before we turn to solutions, um, talk a little bit more about the problem. In the dismissal of science of economics, how did growth become the end, you know, the be all and do all? <laughs> uh, how did it develop, you know, certain ways of counting kinds of labor and, and determining what's more important than others? Yeah, how did growth become the end that never ends? <laughs> <laughs> That's the conundrum. So in Western economic thinking, growth became the end that never ends. Not very long ago, we have to take hope from the fact that this is actually a relatively new concept. This shape of progress that has been put at the heart of Western economics is only really since the 1930s and 40s. It's not even 100 years old. It's quite young. And it began uh, post-crash, 1929 crash in the US. A brilliant economist called um, Simon Kuznets was asked by US Congress to come up with one number to measure the output of the American economy. Uh, because until then it had all been measured in tons of steel and tons of grain. And he did, he came up with this one number and it became what we call national income or GDP, gross domestic product. And he gave a warning too, though, that this, this was scarcely a measure of a nation's welfare. But the warning was pushed aside because the number, the power of the one number is so great. And once policymakers had this one number of the output of the economy and then it was started to be measured across countries, the obvious next question they began to ask is, and how much bigger does it get each year? Because the idea that an economy growing became synonymous with success. And when you have a labor intensive economy where the growth of the economy means more workers are employed in the factories, means more people are going home with a big pay packet in their pocket, means more families can provide for their essential wants and needs, things go well, it seems to work. And so from the 1940s to the 50s to the 1960s, growth became seen as the panacea for any country's problems, whether it's unemployment or inflation or a balanced trade deficit or inequality, growth would apparently be the main solution for this. You want your nation's economy, national income to grow. Three and a half percent per year was seen as the healthy, sustainable rate. You want it to grow endlessly to the end that never ends. It would just keep going up through the ceiling. And what's extraordinary to me is that even in today's richest countries, and I'm sitting in one of them in the UK, across Europe, across the United States, Canada, Australia, Japan. These are countries that are richer than any nation has ever been before. And yet, listen to the economists, listen to the politicians, and they will tell you that the success of these nations, even these nations, lies in yet more growth without end. And there's something profoundly absurd about that. But also, when we just look around, we see that the growth that we've been getting has not gone to the workers into their pay packets, because actually we've seen national incomes grow rapidly and the money, a lot of that in, from, in the US particularly, the vast majority of that growth is going into the hands and the pockets of the 1%. And the average worker is seeing no increase in their wages. So growth is not delivering well-being for all. It's also delivering extraordinary ecological footprints on the planet through carbon emissions, through our material footprints. And so it's jeopardizing the health of the planet. And to me, this is a very serious reason why we need to rethink what's measured there. 
Thank you, Kate. Thank you for that. I think we can see the impacts of some of that, you know, here in our islands, um, and, and we're struggling with many of those issues uh, where we went from about 200 years ago, a fairly self-reliant community with indigenous knowledge and systems and these long-standing familial kin-like relationships with the natural world and the environment in many ways. Um, and this you know, steady transition towards uh, this more extractive <laughs> economy you know, from sandalwood to uh, large-scale sugar plantations uh, to where we're at now in, in battling tourism. And although the numbers keep going up, uh, at least prior to COVID, you know, it was 6 million tourists, 8 million tourists. And just like you're saying, that growth, uh, being on islands, we can see there are a finite amount of resources around us. And the larger the numbers got didn't necessarily meant more <laughs> better well-being for the people here in the islands. So I, I think a lot of these stories resonate. Also in your book, I found this one segment on Adam Smith, really fantastic, where, you know, he, he devises this free market economy and hands off and <laughs> but um, fails to account for you know his, his mother's feeding him and, <laughs> and that doesn't account into his economy so can you talk a little bit about that what it is we count and what matters yes so Adam Smith was a brilliant thinker as in many of these thinkers in this it they, they came up with amazing ideas of their time which are often plucked out of context and we ignore everything else that they wrote but Adam Smith is, is often quoted to justify free markets, not that they really exist, but the idea of the power of the market, that the market will solve everything, or at least is the first best solution. So when Adam was writing his most famous book, The Wealth of Nations, he wrote this line in it. He said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer and the baker that we should expect our dinner. It is from their own interest. And so what he was saying was, look, they're not making your bread and your beer and your, your bacon because they're being kind to you. They're making it because you're paying them and it's their self-interest to supply it and you're the customer and you demand it. And this line is quoted again and again to show that markets mean people serve each other's wants and needs. And it's true, markets are a very powerful mechanism for coordinating the wants and needs of millions or billions of people who may never even speak to provide and demand Two caveats with markets I'll start with. One, they only serve those who can pay, the rest they ignore. And they only value what's priced, the rest they exploit. But there's another caveat to Adam's story, which is that when he was writing this book, he was 43 years old. He had never married, he didn't have a wife, he didn't have children tugging on his coat. He was living at home with his mum. And you can bet that she made his dinner every day. And so as Adam was writing, I imagine the moment when he was with his quill writing, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the that his mum, if she had only said, Adam, dinner's on the table. And he would have thought, oh my goodness, but my dinner also comes from the benevolence of my mother. And he would have perhaps right there on the spot invented what is now known as feminist economics, recognition of the unpaid caring work of the household, which only came 250 years later. He missed it. His mom didn't call him for tea. And so he didn't include it in his monumental work. And so for the next 250 years, economics proceeded as if what's valuable is going to be showing up under prices. And so we have the market and then we have state provision, but it missed the household. And that's where we begin every day in the unpaid caring work of being parents and children and partners and neighbors and carers and relatives. 
And that's often what makes life worth living and makes life work. But he also missed the commons. I'll tell you, so many economists, if you mentioned uh, the commons, so many Western trained economists say, well, what's the commons? They haven't actually heard of it. It's not even taught. So the commons are a place where people come together, not through price exchange with the market, not through public goods provided by the state, but as a community. And that community co-produces goods or services that they collectively value. It could be culture. It could be a festival. It could be a, a neighborhood garden on the corner of your block. It could be Wikipedia on the World Wide Web. And these are all commons that we co-create. There may be no money changing hands. What's created there is of high value to people. Now, when we have economies that only measure market output and public sector output, we are missing the care of the household. We are missing the creativity of the commons. We're also missing the generosity of the living world. And to proceed in the 21st century with metrics that miss those would be to miss almost the heart of what makes life work. And that's why we need to start our economics, recognizing all forms of value creation, all things that we value. The market is just a part of it. You know what, if Adam were alive today, I actually think if, if, if someone put his tea on the table in front of him, he'd, he'd get that. And he would be the first because he also talked about empathy he wrote another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and he cared about empathic connection between people. He cared about community. His ideas, like so many, have been plucked and used for one purpose that I think would have him turn in his grave. I see. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that, Kate. I think it really speaks to how important it is to consider the things that we do count, right, and, and what we consider valuable because, you know, intuitively, yeah, our, our ohana, our families, our households, the things we share together as a community are the things that make us resilient. The commons is an important um, consideration here in Hawaii. There's a lot of efforts towards community stewardship of marine resources, for instance, and we're trying to re-achieve balance, uh, a little too much top-down and not enough bottom-up empowerment of community when it comes to managing you know, diverse fish species that spawn at different times during the year, depending on where you're at community input and, and insight and ancestral knowledge is, is really critical you know, for better managing our, our nearshore resources. And this is something we did very well just a few uh, generations before that now has, has sort of rapidly changed. So and can I you. ask you about that? Yes. Can I ask you about that? Because the skills we need to interact in markets, for example, are very different from the skills that we need to be effective commoners to steward a common resource, to collaborate, to co-create, to guard and, uh, something and protect it, and to ensure that all of the members of that commons protect it. And I would love to hear if you feel that those skills were lost and need to be relearned or whether they feel mm -hmm. nascent or and there's still an echo of them in the culture that can bring them back. Because I, I think one of the crucial things for the success of the commons is going to be able to point to places where it is returning or thriving. And, and as you said, you know, the sense of community stewardship, that's it, that's mm. it. And, and do you feel that that is, has been saved and is being reamplified or is it having to be relearned? No, I think it's definitely been preserved in our, in our communities. Depending on where you go throughout our islands, we have incredible community champions of, of Aloha Aina. You know, on, on Molokai, uh, there's 
large initiatives working to restore fish ponds. And these were ancestrally created, essentially aquacultural systems that were used to farm algae and, and to grow herbivorous fish. And, and they were connected to these malka or terrestrial areas of uh, wetland taro cultivation where you try to create nutrient rich water, you grow your taro and, and then it feeds into these fish ponds. Many of them were filled in, you know, in, in the period of the change in our economy, the occupation of Hawaii, and um, we've lost a number of these fish ponds. I think there were over 400 at one point. Um, and now I believe we have close to 88 or somewhere in there. Um, but nevertheless, incredible community resilience and collaboration around these sites here today. And I can mention all across our islands, Paipaio Heia on Oahu. Um, we have these great, amazing leaders, Waipa Foundation on, on Kauai. You know, I think it, it stems from a realization, and, and you talk about this in your book, that humans aren't, you know, above or disconnected from nature and our, and our biosphere and our planet. We're a part of it. And, you know, our ancestral traditions really tie us to this place in our aina. And like my great friend Malia Akuragawa says, you know, we, we have fierce aloha <laughs> for our islands and our resources. And, you know, we, these are the things that have fed us for generations and will continue. So I think, you know, the, the management of the, of the commons, if you will, um, what we found is, is when you lose that community input and on the ground place-based knowledge, it becomes harder to manage a very complex ecosystem, right? If, if it's just happening in a boardroom once a month, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just not as adaptive. And, and that's where I think Hawaii in the conservation areas and these restoration efforts, uh, we're doing a lot of really cool work because of the resilience of our community and community leaders. So mahalo for that, Kate. Maybe another, another question. Um, in your book, you kind of call yourself and you make this cry out to be, become a renegade economist. <laughs> and maybe can you talk more about that? I mean, you know, the field of economics really drives, as you're saying, you know, our perception of, of what's possible, of what's achievable, of, of our goals. So when did you start to take a di different direction from currents in the main field? And, you know, what, what made you observe and, and kind of question growth and where things were going? Well, I studied economics at university in the early 1990s, so I'm, I'm 50 years old. Um, so after university, I thought I would be learning the mother tongue of public policy that would really help me address issues I'd seen as a teenager arising in the world, like the hole in the ozone layer, like the famine in Ethiopia. I was fascinated by these social, ecological challenges, and I thought economics would give me the skills to help address that. But the theories I was taught, I had great teachers, but the theories I was taught just brushed these issues to the margins. They were voluntary to study if you want to. You can study environmental economics if you want to. It's not part of the essence of what we're doing here. Often taking income distribution as given, so we weren't talking about deep inequalities and, and people's total exclusion from economic activity and, and, and entrenched poverty. And so at the end of four years of studying economics, I, I never wanted to say, hello, I'm an economist. I, I, I was embarrassed. And, and you would generally find, and it's a bit of a joke, right? If you say, hello, I'm an economist, people say, uh, I, I, I'm just off to get a drink or I'll see you later, you know, backing off. All people are intimidated. When I was writing my book, I would say to people, I'm, I'm writing a book about rethinking economics. And, and the first thing they say is, I was never very good at maths at school. 
and people are intimidated. It seems remote, expert, uh, technical, dry. I, so I never wanted to be an economist. And so I walked away from that academic discipline. I didn't stay on and do a PhD because I, I was lost for a sense of connection with it. I went and worked for three years in Zanzibar. Um, and, and the story you were just telling of tourism was very real there as well. In the early 1990s, tourism had just been opened up and I was seeing tourists flocking to these islands, not realizing that this was a Muslim culture, not realizing that the advertising that told them to eat crab and lobster and fish every day was the, the abundance of this was a falsity and they were draining the seas dry and that the price of coastal land was going through the roof. Even the price of coconut palming, what they say in Swahili, makuti, was going through the roof. People couldn't afford fish or land or to build their houses. And I, I was so struck by the, the downside of tourism, um, the devastating impact of this huge money coming into a place that had a much more fragile and, and delicately balanced local economy. So I know I've relearned a lot of my economic thinking. They're working with barefoot entrepreneurs who were raising children and surviving in villages where they had barely, they had no running water, they didn't have a school, they were depending upon their community, their wits and their forest. I definitely relearned a lot there. I then went and worked the United Nations, working on thinking about human development rather than economic development. And that really reoriented my thinking towards mm. a far more social and humanistic thought. And then I was working at Oxfam, I came back to the UK and that's why I now live in Oxford. It was then in the financial crisis and I was a mother. I just had twins. So I was now, unlike Adam Smith, I was immersed in the household economy. I was fully aware of the, the challenge of balancing work and family. And then there was a global financial crisis. And I just remember hearing on the news, economist after economist saying, oh, well, it's, it's time to rewrite economics so that it reflects financial realities. I thought, I'll be darned it if we're only going to re rewrite economics for that. It has to reflect ecological realities. It has to reflect social realities. And it was only at that moment that I, I thought, I want to be part of the team who walk back towards economics and flip it on its head. And instead of starting with supply and demand of the market, as almost every lecture does, let's start with the fundamental values that make life work. And from there, work out what kind of economy would be in service to life and it was somebody said to me oh you're a renegade and it was when I thought renegade economists okay I can actually do that I can be that I can handle that because if you say hi I'm a renegade economist immediately people know that you're being playful it opens up a conversation and no one thinks that you're going to bore them with a spreadsheet so that's where my return towards economics came from very much from outside of academia very much from a journey through life, becoming a mother, living with people in Zanzibar, really immersing myself in other worlds. And so I come back at economics from a deep world experience that uh, has taught me to have the confidence to question the very flimsy fundamental assumptions at the heart of it. Oh, that's amazing. Well, mahalo for sharing that, that story and you know, walking us through that process, Kate. It's, it's so illuminating. Um, to, to think about that, that transition. And my apologies for having to interrupt this conversation between Kamana Maikalani Beamer, full professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa, and Kate Rayworth. They met by Zoom on October 7, 2021, at the 16th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival. 
Kate Raworth is the author of the book Donut Economics that has been translated into over 20 languages. She's a senior associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. But we're out of time, so please come back next week for the conclusion of this exchange on your radio station or go to the website www.tucradio.org for free downloads. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>